0: Let's join our hearts together as we pray the Lord's Prayer, as is our custom, and especially on this holy of holy days. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Holidays originally came from the word holy days. So the purpose of holidays, the purpose of holy days um, in the nation of Israel was to take a break Now, sometimes they did this with great regularity, like the Sabbath day. Sometimes they were so spread apart that you might only see one or two at the most in your generation, uh, like uh, the day of Jubilee or the 50-year remembrance. But most of the holy days were every year. And the reason they were every year is to help everyone the young, the old, the mature, the immature, to help them understand what our worldview was to be, uh, in their their case, the worldview of Israel. Uh, Holy days were to remind them of something, in some cases, that had happened, in some cases of something that was coming. Other holy days reminded them of the way they were to live. And they had these celebrations. And in fact, in our culture, a lot of our holidays are rooted in holy days. Now, not all of them, but a lot of them. Um, Now, I don't know there are days like National Chocolate Day and National Hot Dog Day. I imagine if you stretched it, you you could find some kind of spiritual meaning to those things. But those aren't the same kind of holidays we're talking about. Um, the 4th of July has a strong component behind it. This is why we're taking today to celebrate. Or Veterans Day or Memorial Day, um, President's Day. And, and, there, and there are others. I shouldn't try to name them all. But um, they, are, they are days that point us back and say, yes, we remember. Some of the feast days looked ahead to Messiah that was coming. Some, I think, still look ahead to Messiah's fulfillment. But the purpose, again, was to, first of all, remember and celebrate. So we want today to do a very basic sermon. Everything I say today, you've heard me say before, but we want to remember and we want to celebrate It's important that we not forget, those of us that are older, that we not forget our roots. It's important for those in the middle to remember why we gather and what you need to communicate to your children and what you need to honor of those that are older and have gone before you. It's a time we tell our children and we give them a worldview. I tell you, the battle in the world today is for the worldview of our children I know of no battle bigger than that one uh, in society, the battle for our children. Uh, It begins uh, at conception and goes all the way through their education. There There is a battle for the worldview of our children. And we need to produce not only in grandmas and grandpas, and in moms and dads, but in our children. And that's why we need to pray for our nursery workers. That's why we need to pray for Pastor Bella and for for Pastor Mike. We need to pray for them especially because they are in such a societal battle to give our children a biblical worldview, to not lose sense of biblical literacy. We want them to understand What we believe and why, how to defend their faith. Now I know there's some rough patches along the way. I I know that. Um, I had a friend in Illinois that pastored a church, and and he loved to tell. And I've told it here about their Easter presentation, featuring every group of children came out. They did a song or they did something. Four-year-olds came out to do uh, the reason for Christmas. And the kids were cued with a question and answer. And they were just on a roll. And the the department leader decided she was just going to go from child to child and get some answers. And she went to one and said, can you tell us what Easter is about and what it means? And this little fellow was a godly little boy. He loved Jesus with all of his heart. But he was not told he was going to be on the program. And they said, tell us about Easter. And in front of several thousand people, he said, well, Easter is about when they killed Jesus on the cross. And after they killed him, they put him in a cave and put a rock in front of the cave. Well, did he stay in the cave? No, an angel rolled the the rock away and Jesus came out, and, and, he, and he came out, and he was alive. And they said, and what does that mean? And he said, if he sees his shadow, we have six more weeks of winter. <laughs> now, bless his heart, he wasn't perfect in his theology But he was far better than most people were. He was closer than most people were. The fact of the matter is because Jesus came out, because he lives, we can face tomorrow. And that's not just just faith. That's not a myth. It's not a story. It's something that we live and die by. Paul said the resurrection was so important, so important. He said, if the resurrection is not true, then your faith has no value. Your faith is pointless. You are living a lie and you are of all people to be most pitied if the story of Christ's resurrection is not true. I mean, he he doesn't leave any room to back out. And say, well, it could be just metaphorical or it could be just an allegory. He said, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, we are still in our sins. And your faith is useless. And I tell you what, that's a very sobering. I read that paragraph and it is so sobering. But I am so thankful for the next paragraph. He said, but... Jesus is raised from the grave. He doesn't leave it. I remember the story of Oswald Smith, pastor of the People's Church, I think it was called, in Toronto, Canada. And one Easter Sunday, he got up and shocked his congregation. He told the Christian message of salvation, the story of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, And he said, I looked at and I could tell they were people there just because their wife made them come or their mama made them come. And he said, I could tell that I was meeting skepticism several places all through the congregation. Most people were excited. Most people were faith-filled. He said, but they were there to have their annual exposure to the gospel story. And um, uh, it reminded me of something somebody told me one time. He said, only came to church twice a year at Christmas and Easter. Now, please understand, I'm not fussing at people that only come Christmas and Easter. Probably, I don't know, out of this many people, probably some of you only come Christmas and Easter. I want to tell you something. I'm on your side. I'm, I'm not against you. Um, but but I, I would just say, I, I am so honored you're here. And if you only come twice a year, I am so honored to have you. And I mean that sincerely. But I asked this guy, I said, why, why is that? Because he seemed to like me, seemed to like the church. And this is what he said. He said, well, he said, I know what you preach is the truth. And I know I've got to come to grips with Jesus one day. But he said, I feel safe on Easter and Sunday. I said, why do you feel safe on Easter and Sunday? He said, well, because Easter, or excuse me, Christmas, Christmas and Easter is what I was trying to say. He said, on Christmas... Jesus is a little baby in a crib wrapped up in a blanket. He can't touch me. He said on Easter, he's nailed to a cross and he can't touch me. He said, it's all those other Sundays I worry about. And, you know, I think he was half being funny and he eventually did come to the Lord. But we need to understand the importance of, that is held on this Sunday called Easter because it means that death was defeated, means sin was defeated. It means the resurrection is an evidence that the Holy God accepted fully the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And um, we need to understand a, a verse that we've talked about from time to time. And it was a principle that the New Testament Uh, echoed and the Old Testament prophets put forth. This is what they said. They said, where there is no vision, the people perish. One translation says, where there is no vision, um, the people are unrestrained. And what vision meant was a holy standard, a holy decree, a prophetic word. And the prophet said this, where people live without a sense of the holiness of God, where people live saying there is no such thing as absolute truth, they will live an unrestrained life. Uh, He said on the other side of the coin, he said, but blessed is the people whose uh, God is the Lord and whose word they follow. You see, when society moves away from the idea of an absolute truth. He says, they go wild. He says, there is no restraint. What it means literally is there's nothing to stop them because they're living by whatever truth seems good to them. We are in a society today where um, people talk about, well, my truth's not necessarily the same as your truth. And my truth is just as valid is your truth and guys I want to tell you it's not about my truth and your truth it's about the truth and and I've, I've got to tell you society breaks down America breaks down civility breaks down morality breaks down decency breaks down government breaks down from the White House all the way down to the lowest echelons of government, everything breaks down when we decide that we're going to live by whatever truth we want to embrace. And we need to understand as Christians, I know a lot of churches don't really preach the gospel because they want to be uh, inclusive, they want to be loving. And I would just say this, I understand that the church needs to be inclusive and the church needs to be loving, but living a lie isn't loving people telling them something that's not true is not loving people. And, um, I don't say that to be belligerent. I'm saying the first step that our society needs to take in the right direction is to get the church literate in God's word again, is get our children believing the truth of God's word because we're throwing them out into a system. Oh boy, that sounds bad. That sounds like we're doing it But, I mean, they they are thrown, in many cases, into a system that tells them you're not what you appear to be, you're not what your mom and daddy say you are, you're not what the Bible says you are, whatever you feel is the truth you embrace, and that is a step toward being unrestrained, it's a step toward being unaccountable, it's a step toward disaster. Disaster. And Easter is a time that we don't uh, get all excited. Well, I guess it's okay, yeah. if they're chocolate. You can get excited about Easter eggs. I, I I loved one of my grandkids. There was this, I got a video yesterday. There was a beautiful song about Mr. Bunny hopping along and the Easter bunny. And then all of a sudden, this was a video at home. Uh, You see the Easter bunny, uh, a stuffed bunny going along and it gets in, steps on a, like a sheet and then whoop, my little preschooler from upstairs has set the trap and is pulling the bunny up the stairs. Yeah, there's a lot of fun we can have with Easter with bunnies and rabbits and chocolate, Cadbury's especially. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as that's not the focus of Easter. But I I do want to tell you this, we need to be sure that we understand what Easter is really about before we attempt to condemn the world for not knowing what Easter is about. So I want to use today to just talk about three things. And it sounds like a lot of numbers, but it it won't take us that long. I want to talk about our problem. See, the Christian worldview helps us understand that we have a problem that is huge. The second thing that I want to talk about is God has made a way out of our problem and it's called the plan of salvation. And then the third thing that I want to conclude with is um, three reasons why Easter makes a difference three reasons why Easter ought to be celebrated. Now, I'm not using one of the uh, classic Easter texts today. In fact, it's more of a Christmas text, but it's Galatians 4, uh, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. It says, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons and daughters. Now, I've already talked to you about the importance of Easter. Paul said, if you don't believe it, your faith is pointless. Paul says in Galatians, and by the way, Galatians was written to a group of people that had received the gospel but were guilty of mixing it with their own truth. And he said, You've got to understand when the time was right, God sent his son to solve our problem. Now, this is our problem. Uh, We have moved away sometimes, in many cases, from a biblical worldview. I think a biblical worldview, you can have 30 points, you can have 60 points. just depends on how detailed you want to go. But I think the four things that really matter that should be a part of every Christian's worldview are these four things. You have them in your note. Number one, we were created by God and we were the pinnacle of his creation. If you don't believe that we were created by God, if you don't believe that we were the pinnacle of his creation, then abortion doesn't matter. Euthanasia doesn't matter. The Tennessee snail darter is just as important as a human being. Saving the whales is just as, if not more important, than saving the children. Human trafficking becomes something that we are appalled by, but we don't see it for the sin it is because it's just survival of the fittest. That's why we allowed slavery in our country for so long. Uh, It was, we, we said, everybody is created in the image of God, just not the same image, just not to the same degree just not in the same way. And slavery brings people down. Abortion lessens the value of people. Human trafficking, when it's tolerated, it ought to be something that we fight with both hands and all of our teeth. We need to understand that we are a special creation of God and we were the pinnacle of his creation. Here's the second thing that's a biblical worldview. We rebelled against our Creator, resulting in a fall from which we could not recover. That's the Christian worldview. Someone asked uh, a, president, a presidential candidate a few years ago, uh, you say you believe in Jesus. What, what sins have you committed? What sin did you need Jesus to forgive? And that presidential candidate said, well, I don't know that I've committed anything that he really needs to forgive. And I thought if that person's a Christian, they are a baby Christian, uh, maybe even a premature Christian. You know, I don't know because we have fallen and we cannot get up. One time when I was in uh, elementary school, I was going someplace with some family members and um, my grandmother who would have been about my age now was walking along and she misstepped on the sidewalk, fell over, did a pretty nasty roll. And I thought, oh, you know, and she was bruised up afterwards. I went to help her up. I I know. And I went to help her up. And my mom said, no, no. She said, she's embarrassed. Let her, let her get up. She said, I don't need any help. I don't need any help. My mom said, let her, let her up. She doesn't need any help. She said, I don't, I don't need any help. And so I backed up and she kind of rolled back and forth and kind of moved both ways. And she looked at me and said, Stevie, I need some help, you know, (laughs) and I went and helped her up and, um, from that point on, whenever she needed something like help, I decided don't, don't go away at first rejection. Wait and see if she really meant it, you know. But loved ones, we rebelled, we fell, and we can't get up. We can't get up on our own. And you say, well, but I believe people are better than people. And I, I'm, I'm not a Christian, but I live a good Life. I have lived a good life. I don't doubt that, but a good life is not enough. We need forgiveness for the sin of high treason. It's sort of like trying to jump to the moon without help. You know, you may try to jump to the moon from the lowest point. You can go to the Dead Sea, lowest point on earth, and really work at it and really get a running start and jump, and you're not going to the moon. But I can tell you, you can go to the top of Mount Everest or whatever the highest mountain is, and you can jump from way up at Mount Everest with thousands of feet of advantage, and you're still not going to the moon. See, the idea, the Bible teaches total depravity. The Bible Total depravity doesn't mean that we are the worst we can be. I know a lot of people that are good people. I'd love to have them as neighbors, even though they're not Christians. I mean, they're really good people. Total depravity doesn't mean that I am as bad as I can be. It means that I am as bad off as I can be. And there's a huge difference. I may not be as bad as this person. They may be this bad. I may only be this bad. But we have the same problem. We have absolutely no ability to jump to the moon. We have absolutely no ability to stand before a righteous God. We have fallen and we cannot get up. That leads us to the third point of the worldview. The Creator that created us and that we rebelled against in His love, He created a way of redemption through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. He created a way of redemption. And this is the thing that is so sobering. The fourth point of our worldview is that my eternal destiny, whether it's spent in heaven or whether it's spent in hell, my eternal destiny hinges on what I do with Jesus. It hinges on what I do with Jesus. Now, we don't have time to go through every nuance of that. Um, We believe that a person... The only way to heaven is Jesus. Uh, Why do we believe that? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father unless he comes by me. The scripture says there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. That's not hate speech. That's not intolerance. That's Christians believing something foundational in their worldview that Jesus is the way, he's the truth, and the life. Um, Now, let's move on to the second thing. That's our problem. Let's talk about our salvation. Um, The way that God provided for me to get to heaven is through Jesus, and I think... It revolves when we, when we call believe in Jesus. It's not believing that he existed. Now, I mean, there's a, there's a big, I've seen, oh, I've seen so much this, this year uh, about, you know, we don't even know if Jesus lived. There was a secular historian that said, uh, everything we know about the past, we get it from primary sources we know about the Roman emperors through primary sources. He said, we know about Jesus through primary sources. He said, but for some reason unexplainable to me, and he wasn't a Christian, he said, "Um, we don't accept Christian primary sources. We say they are myth and fable. But he said, as a non-religious man, applying the same standards to every ancient historical record, He said, I want you to know this. This was back in the 50s. He said, there is more proof that Jesus was raised from the dead. He's not even talking about Jesus existing. There's more proof, concrete proof that Jesus raised from the dead than there is concrete evidence that Julius Caesar ever existed. We are being told a lie that our sources are unreliable and that our facts are unreliable. That's not true. Using the same standards across the board, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has more witnesses, more evidence, more written confirmation that Jesus was raised from the dead than that Julius Caesar ever even lived. our worldview. Here's what five components of Christianity that I think are are foundational. Number one, and and you say, what do you mean foundational? I believe that if someone does not believe this, I have reason to call into question whether they are Christians at all. One of my favorite theologians, I read him for years and the more I read him, I mean, he had considerable insight into scripture, but then I began to come across scriptures like this. He said, it doesn't matter if Jesus was born of a virgin or not. He said, I personally think that it's just as likely, God showing grace, I think it's just as likely that Mary was impregnated by a drunken Roman soldier in the good time town of Nazareth. And he said, I don't have to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. I just need to believe he lived a good life. He said, I don't have to believe that Jesus' miracles were literal miracles. People tell stories all the time that are allegories. I don't know if Jesus ever healed anybody, but there's a lesson we can learn from the myth. He said this, he says, whether you believe Jesus rose from the dead or not doesn't matter. What matters is that you believe his influence lives on. And I finally quit using him as one of my reading sources. When I, when I read him or I heard him say this, he, he, he said, it doesn't matter if Jesus was raised from the dead. All that matters, all that matters is that his teachings live on. And if his teachings live on, he never died. And I, I thought, What do you believe in? And and then I I think he really loved Jesus, but he loved Jesus like you love a favorite dog or you have a favorite president that you have his his bust on your desk. No, there's something, am I hearing Papa? Okay, well, I'll answer it anyway. Um, There's something phenomenal About the exclusivity of Jesus, when Jesus said, Whosoever will may come. Anybody who comes to me, I will never turn away. He said, I gave my life. God so loved the world. But at the same time, He said, This is how you must come. He is divine, number one. God who became incarnate, and He wasn't half God and half man. This is a great mystery. It's nothing to compare it to on earth, but uh, it's like the Trinity. There's nothing to compare it to. It's a divine truth that only in life all we have are some things that point to it. But he was fully God, fully man. God came in the form of flesh and his name was Jesus. He's divine. Number two, Jesus was born of a virgin in order to produce a bloodline of purity, he was the only perfect, worthy sacrifice. So he was, he was God, and he was born of a virgin. And you say, man, that's, that's, a, that's a tough one to believe. Well, you're like the little boy that went to Sunday school for the first time. And his mom and dad asked him, what was Sunday school about? He said it was about this guy named Jonah. And they, they knew the story. They said, well, tell us what they told you in Sunday school. He said, well, Jonah was a preacher and he was running from God and he didn't want to do what God told him to do. So he got on a boat and when nobody was looking, he let down the lifeboat and then he went ashore to an island to run from God and, and he stayed there forever and, 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 he never, and he got away from what God wanted him to do. The daddy who knew by now he should have been taking the boy to Sunday school, he said, son, I don't believe that. He said, well, if you don't believe that, you'd have never believed what they told me (laughs) in Sunday school. (laughs) Jesus was divine. He was born of a virgin. But here is is the miracle I can't wrap my head around. Number three, Jesus, the Jesus we worship, lived a sinless life. He wasn't a man that became a God. He was God that became a man. We don't serve a Jesus that set an example. He became divine and we can become divine too if we'll just do what he did. No, he lived a sinless life. Now, guys, think about that, a sinless life. We're talking about a man who lived... Over 30 years, we know he lived at least 33 years and, and possibly longer. We're not, we, the, the reason we say three years of ministry is that in the gospels, there are three Passovers, three different Passovers mentioned. And we don't know exactly how long Jesus' ministry was. When, they, when the elders looked at him, they said, you're not even 40 years old yet. So we know we've got it pretty close, but here's a man that lived into his fourth decade of life. And he never sinned. He never grieved the Spirit. He never fell short in any way. Now, I've, I've, I've done that it, up to, I think, maybe seven or eight minutes at a time. <laughs> Lived sinless. Of course, that's only talking about sins I'm aware of. I, I know there were things that were in me that I wasn't aware of because after five or six minutes, I started feeling very prideful. And so I knew... I knew that I wasn't living a sinful life, or sinless life after all. But think of this, Jesus lived a sinless life. Think of, of the implications of what John the Baptist said. The Lord told him, the one upon whom the Holy Spirit descends and abides. Now, I know the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us in the sense of a bird flying away, but it is possible for us to grieve him. It's possible for us to quench him. It's possible for us to disobey him. But the moment the Holy Spirit symbolically came upon Jesus, there was never any need for him to leave. So he lived a sinless life. Number four, we believe Jesus died a substitutionary death on the cross. He died on the cross. He didn't pass out and get rescued later. His disciples did not steal his body, as the guards were paid to say. God came in the form of man, born of a virgin, and he lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death on the cross in my place. And here's the other thing that we cannot and must not deny. Jesus was raised physically from the dead. There is an empty tomb. Where he was, he's there no longer. (laughs) And he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he's living right now to make intercession for us. Now that is our foundation for salvation and that comes out of a biblical worldview that says we were created by God and we're the pinnacle of his creation um, and then we rebelled against him. All we like sheep have gone astray. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He provided a way back through Jesus and our destiny depends on what we do with Jesus. He's not a way. He's not one of the paths. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And again, we are being accused of hate language, of hate speech, of intolerance, and we're not being intolerant. We're holding to a Christian orthodoxy and we say anybody can come, but they have to come on Jesus' terms. We're not even saying they have to come on our terms, but we're saying they have to come on Jesus' terms. Now, let's wrap this thing up. What is our special day? Why is Easter special? What are the, what are the three things we need to know um, that make Easter such a phenomenal day? Why is it that we need to keep pushing Easter and making it bigger and bigger and bigger uh, in terms of celebration and attendance and what we teach our children? Well, the first thing is this. Easter looks back. There's something about Easter that is rooted in the past. Easter looks back and gives us another chance. Easter looks back and gives us another chance. That's why the New Testament says that salvation is an event in the past. We've talked about this. Salvation in the New Testament is seen as something in the past, something in the present, and something in the future. Easter brings all of that together. Um, salvation is rooted in an, in an event in the past. It, uh, let me explain to you what I mean. Ephesians 2.8. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. So not only was it established before the beginning of time, not only was it established because Jesus died on the cross uh, 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 nearly 2,000 years ago, events in the past, but it's also tied in the past because a little fella named Steve Chitty went to the altar on a Sunday night in January 1965. And on that day, I said, Jesus, I give you my life. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. So I am changed, and Easter is important because of what has happened. God made a decree that we would be saved, whosoever will may come. He, he sent Jesus to die on the cross. Everything before that in the Old Testament, the sacrifices, the holy days, all of that was looking forward to the perfect sacrifice that would come. Now we don't keep those sacrifices anymore. We don't, we don't kill lambs and oxen and turtle doves. Uh, we just kill deer. I'm sorry. There's probably non-hunters in the audience. My my apologies. Um, No, seriously, you understand what I'm saying? We don't sacrifice any animals anymore because in the past, it looked forward to the sacrifice that was coming. But we now look back to the sacrifice that was offered once and for all and is all-sufficient. I was talking to someone the other day, not, not a member of our church, just a, just a stranger I met. And we were talking about Easter and one thing turned to another. He said, you know, I, 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 would, I would probably be a Christian if God wasn't so bloody. Why, why does he require uh, that Jesus die on the cross? Number one, that's a person. But I don't even understand why he made all those animals die. I mean, if God's really love, why is everything about death and blood and death and blood and death and blood? And I let him vent a little bit. And I said, because you need to understand this. God in his love and mercy was telling us that sin is so grievous that it requires a life to be atoned for. I said, when Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing God did after confronting them, was to kill an animal. He wanted Adam and Eve to understand that sin is serious business. And when sin occurs, it requires blood. And loved one, it's not because God is a a bloody ogre. It's not because he has bloodlust. It's not because he's violent. He is screaming with all of his heart, look what sin cost you. When you live this way, it will destroy everything that's precious to you. And life can only be restored when life is taken. So, we need to understand that uh, uh, he saved us. Um, he saved us and called us to a holy life. That's what we just talked about in Ephesians. I put the wrong verse with 2 Timothy, my bad. But Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of righteous things, that we had done, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. There it is, past tense. He has saved us. In the past, he has saved us. Jesus died on the cross. We accepted him. Past, he saved us. First Timothy, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came. In the fullness of time, he came to save sinners. And Paul said, in case you're wondering, I'm the worst. I'm the absolute worst. Now, when we say salvation was in the past, uh, I'm saying that because I want you to know that our experience of salvation is far from finished, but in no way is it incomplete. It it began, but it's still progressing. I don't mean you're 30% saved. I don't mean that you're almost saved. Uh, No, John says we have passed from death into life. We have eternal life. I'm not waiting to die to get eternal life. I have eternal life right now. And every day that goes by, it's growing more and more and more into fulfillment. See, when your baby was born You know, Bunk, I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but the moment uh, Luca and Everett were born, at that moment, they were never going to be your children anymore than they were at that moment, even before that moment. They were Hefners from the word go. But I guarantee you, if I asked Alyssa, they're acting more and more like their daddy. (laughs) They're becoming Hefners more and more and more. And it's not one day they're going to grow to a point and daddy will say, I declare you my children fully. No, but what is going to happen is they're growing more and more to become what they already are. And you and I are growing more and more to become what we already are. But it started in the past, but that leads us to the second thing about Easter. Easter looks back and gives us a second chance, but Easter looks around in the present and gives us meaning in life. So salvation is an experience in the present. Let's look at some other passages that don't talk about you were saved, but let's look at some passages that say you are being saved, okay? For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You and I were saved, (laughs) but there is a power of God working in us right now, making us more and more like Jesus. It's called the power of sanctification, and it's through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, by this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. He said, you're saved, but you keep moving, you keep holding on, you keep striving he says in uh, his first epistle, Peter says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. So we've got scriptures that say you were saved. It's rooted in the past. And then we've got just as many scriptures that say you are in the process of being saved right now and you're moving, we're about to find out, to a, to a full conclusion in the future. Easter looks ahead. This is number three and gives us hope. So salvation is an expectation for the future. Listen to these verses, Romans 13, 11, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Now, does that verse mean You're not saved yet, but you're getting close. No, Now, now, there are times Jesus pointed out to a couple of people, you're not far from the kingdom. But he wasn't saying, you're you're almost saved or you're 70% saved. He was saying, you're on the right path, but you're not in yet. That's not what he says to us. He says this beautiful thing that I called you to is getting closer and closer and closer to fulfillment. You remember, guys, when you saw that beautiful girl and you said, I sure think I'd like to date her. And, and if, you know, you, you try to become a friend with her, you try to find out her interests. Um, when I used to play in a church basketball league Terry Wozden, my friend, said, you know what I've noticed? I said, what? He said, you score on average about 12 points a game more when Ramona's here. <laughs> he, I said, no, I don't think so. He said, I've looked it up. <laughs> when she's here, you score more. He said, I also know that you dive for the ball. When she's here, I said that's called romancing. <laughs> oh, I tell you! And then you try to impress them. You try to 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 win their heart, and you you want a steady relationship. So you might go to their dad and ask for permission to date his daughter. And depending on the 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 Dad it may take a couple of years. I hope not. Um, it 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 may take you know a little while, but you get permission, and then you enter this thing called a courtship, and you decide she's the one. She decides he's the one. So you move from a courtship to an engagement. Now, it's still the same basic rules. Except, I mean, you know, there's moral purity in an engagement or a courtship. But when you get engaged, you start thinking about, it ain't going to be this way forever. One day we're going to live in the same house. One day we're going to sleep in the same bed. One day I'm going to call her mine and nobody else can call her theirs. And boy, you start anticipating and man, I tell you, engagement is such a powerful time. In fact, I've always told kids growing up, I, you know, I I believe in proper dating, but when you get engaged, don't make it a long engagement because your whole way of thinking changes. And I said, set a date, stick to it. If you can't afford it, borrow the money. But then that day comes where she walks down the aisle and she says, I will. And you say, yes, ma'am. And you you get to kiss her and you're introduced as Mr. and Mrs. And you know right then everything's changing. But it's all been this process of love. I'm drawn to her. I'm committed to her. Now I'm one with her. I'm telling you, things change. Uh, I I remember when Justin and Angela got married. You got to forgive me for telling on them. Well, maybe you don't, but they do. (laughs) I I remember I said, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Justin, you may kiss your bride. And they started kissing. And I waited and I waited. (laughs) I mean, this is recorded. I said, guys, it's customary to just do one kiss. There'll be time for this later, you know. Justin's sweating. I'm telling the truth, aren't (laughs) I? Loved ones, you go from beautiful to unthinkably beautiful to exquisitely more than you could ask or think. It's the way salvation is. I thank God. I'll never forget that night I said, Jesus, come into my heart. I will never forget my journey that I'm on right now that is full of joy unspeakable and full of glory. Oh, I love it. It's getting better and better and better. I woke up uh, yesterday morning. And usually I spend Saturday in a very solemn, after Good Friday, in a very solemn mindset. And I woke up, I just started crying. And I just said, Lord, I'm so thankful that you chose me. I'm so thankful that you loved me. I'm thankful that you put me in the ministry. I'm thankful you called me your son. And I I tell you, all day yesterday, in varying degrees, was just a celebration of I'm not worthy, but he called me. And then I woke up this morning, not just with the idea that he has risen, but I woke up this morning and say, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Hebrews 9.28 says, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. He will appear a second time, not to bear sin. Now, the first time he came was to take away our sin. But when he comes back, it's not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. When he returns, everything that he has begun in me will be completed. That's why Paul said, I am persuaded. I am persuaded that he who has begun this good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Let's read one more. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy... He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, never fade. (coughs) Excuse me, this inheritance, where is it? It's kept in heaven for you. See, what we have right now, even the indwelling Holy Spirit is just a down payment The inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Loved ones, you say, oh, I'm just, I'm, I know the joy of the Lord. I know what it's like to walk in the glory of God. No, you don't. You and I just know how to walk in the shadow of it. We just walk in the shadow of it. That's why John said, beloved... It does not yet appear what we shall be. Think about that. John says, you, you ain't seen what you're going to be. <coughs> Let me drink some water while you think about that. <laughs> Remember the C.S. Lewis quote from a few weeks ago? He said, be careful when you're dealing with people... He said, because you are dealing with people who have a weight of glory on them, that the day is coming, the day is coming when if we were to see them as they shall be, we would be tempted to worship them as gods. Remember John in the book of Revelation, he knelt down to worship He thought worship was in order, but the one he wanted to worship said, don't worship me, worship God. I'm just a fellow servant just like you. But something when we get into his presence is going to change. We're gonna gonna do more than shed 20 pounds when we go to heaven. (laughs) Beloved, it does not yet appear what we shall be. You don't have a clue. None of us understand what we will be like. He says, but know this, when Christ shall appear, we shall be just like Him. Why? Because we will see Him just as He is. And I love what He said. He said, every man that believes this cleanses their life. They clean up. They get ready knowing that the day is coming. Um, An inheritance that can never perish, kept in heaven for you. You're shielded by God's power, waiting for the salvation that's ready to be revealed. Loved one, we don't understand how glorious it will be, but Easter is a reminder that whatever we were, God was able to deal with. He, one of my favorite passages, he said, we know this kind of person, this kind of person. And he lists what, I don't know, seven, eight, nine types of wicked people shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says this, and su-, Paul does, and such were some of you. He names all of these, what we would think are hopeless cases. And such were some of you. Boy, that's, a, that's an encouraging thing to hear from your pastor. Don't get mad with the world. It's, you're just like them. He said, And such were some of you, but you are washed. But you are sanctified. But you are holy. But you are righteous. See, Easter, the first thing it reminds us of is I am not now what I used to be. I am not carrying the guilt and the shame of my past life because Easter looks back and says, you are forgiven. Easter says, look around you and you've got hope. You say, I don't feel like I've got hope. You remember when he gives us the armor that we're to walk in that makes us victorious? He gives us the shoes that bring peace. He gives us a sword that is the word of God. He gives us a shield of faith, he said, with which we'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the devil. He gives us a belt of truth. And he said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. He gives us a breastplate of righteousness that says we stand before God righteous and he helps us live a righteous life but when we get to the helmet it's just called the helmet of salvation and you say you know what does that mean but it's explained twice in the new testament for a helmet you have the hope of salvation (coughs) you say hope You, you, you mean like i got all that other stuff and i still don't know if i'm saved Oh no. Hope is a very positive thing. Hope is a very positive word. The word in the Bible and and, uh, and especially in Greek is more powerful than the word in English. We say, oh, I hope my candidate wins the election. I hope so. Oh, you're going to get over this sickness soon. You'll be on your feet in no time. I hope so. You know, you're, you're going to get a raise and pay or you're going to get a new job. I, I hope so. <laughs> what you're saying is, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing sort of. I think it can happen. I just hope that it will. But hope in the Bible is a positive, certain expectation that places no limits of time or method or instrumentation upon God. Hope says, I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know when he's going to do it. I don't know the details. I just know he keeps his word. That's why we call it the hope of salvation. It's not a, I hope so. It is a statement that says, no matter what happens in this world, no matter what happens in this life, God always keeps his word. A few years ago, I I heard that a neighbor to my parents, it, where I, where I'd grown up, had uh, a terminal disease and was given just a little while to live. Um, if if I remember correctly, I lived in in Illinois then. We might have moved here. I don't remember, but I heard she was sick, and I went home to visit my parents, and I asked, "Would it be okay if I go in and pray?" I, I won't mention her name, but pray for your wife. And they had been just great neighbors. And I was so sad to hear. And I knew that'd probably be the last time I had to see her. I said, would it be okay if I pray with her? He said, please. He says, let me go be sure she's okay. She's in a lot of pain. He went in, came back and said, sure, come in. And I went in, sat down with her and gave her a hug. I said, well, I hear You've got some, some bad news that you're having to deal with. But uh, she's been to church all of her life, ever since a little girl. They were church members. Uh, her husband, I think, was even on the board of the church. And um, I said, and she had lived a good life. She was in, probably in her 80s, close to it, I would imagine. And um, I said, I'd, I'd like to to just pray for you. And she said, I wish you would. She said, I, I've... I, I, I said, I just want to know, I said, I know that you've gone to church forever. And I just want to be sure you feel like everything's okay between you and God. And she said, I hope so. And I said, uh, she, she said, I, I've done everything I know to do and I think I'm ready. And then I'll think about something and I just live in this perpetual, I hope so. Is there any way you can help me cover the list? And be sure that there's nothing that's going to get there uh, or, or, or meet me when I get there. And I talked to her. I said, what are you worried about? She said, I'm just not perfect. Thoughts, attitudes, da-da-da-da. We went through that. And I explained to her that when Jesus saves us, he saves us for time and eternity. He deals with the penalty for sin, the punishment for sin in the past when we come to him. He deals with the power of sin in our present life right now. We're learning to live above sin. I said, but when you go to heaven, you're going to be free from the, from the uh, presence of sin or the possibility of sin. I said, you're not going to get there and him say, close but no cigar. And she started crying. She said, I've been in church all of my life. She said, and nobody's ever told me I could know that I'm saved. They said, you do the best you can and God is fair and God is just. You do the best you can and you just hope that God will let you in. And she said, they told me that was faith. And I said, I understand what they're trying to say, but that sounds more like doubt to me. I said, let me tell you what the Bible says. And I went through this and I said, You can know that when you draw your last breath, you can know that you go to heaven. She started crying. She said, Nobody's ever told me that. She said, Tell me again. And I went through it again. And I went through the verses. And she took my hand and said, I want that. I want that so badly. And I prayed with her, not for her to get right, but for her to realize that God had forgiven her, that God had brought her into his kingdom already. I gave her a hug and I said, well, I'll see you later. She said, no. She said, you'll see me there because I know I'm going to be there. After she died, her husband said the last days of her life were the most peaceful, exciting, meaningful days she had ever had. He said she's always had a heart to serve God, but she never felt like it was good enough. But you see, loved ones, Easter says it's been dealt with Easter says, I'll help you with what you're dealing with now. And Easter says, I am able to confirm, to keep what I have promised. I'm able to complete the work I've begun in you, and I'll make sure that it happens. Oh, I tell you what, I've got all my eggs, no pun intended, maybe pun intended. I've got all my eggs in one basket. Jesus, the living Christ. I'm not going to heaven. We read two verses by what I have done, but because of what he has done, I wear the hope of salvation. Now, we're going to pray. And some are in Brown Chapel. They're going to pray. Some are in the sanctuary. You'll, you'll be here to pray we're going to have ministry team come and they'll be glad to pray with you. Some of you are listening online. You'll want to pray. There's a number you can call. We'd love to pray with you. But but please hear me, loved ones. This has been very heavy on my heart. Um, this, and I, am not, I don't mean to complain and I don't mean to focus on my problems. But I want to tell you, this, is, this has been a, a numbing Easter season for me. Um, my, so many, you know, my brothers, friends that are gone and I, I can't call them, I can't communicate with them anymore till we get there. It's been a heavy thing that I'm carrying. But I want to tell you, it's also been an exhilarating thing to realize that every time we lose a loved one, even an untimely death, we're making an investment on the other side. We're making an investment on the other side. (laughs) I told you, my mom and dad put me in a savings program in the first grade where they saved a dollar a week, mutual federal savings and loan, a dollar a week. And they had come and give us the lesson about the squirrels and the ants preparing for a rainy day. And back then, a dollar was a real dollar, I mean it was worth a dollar. (laughs) And they put a dollar in every week. And I remember probably third grade, I said, and my dad made a deal. He said, whatever you save, I'll match. When you're ready to drive, you buy a car. I was probably in the third grade. I said, I said, Mama, I said, every week we put in a dollar. I ain't seen any of that. She said, it, I said, it bothers me when I put a dollar in that envelope that they say they've got it in the bank. I even had her take me down there one time and ask them if they could show me where my money is. And they took me in the vault. But they said, come see us if you want to know where your money is. Well, all I saw was a lot of boxes. They told me my money was in there, but I don't know. I don't know. I said, I just, I said, a dollar, I said, this tells you how long ago it was. I could buy 20 candy bars with that dollar. I said, I'll never see it again. And she did something that changed my world. She said, Son, I'm putting this dollar in and I guarantee you'll see it again. I said, When? I, she said, You'll see it. It just won't be like it is now, it'll be a car or it'll be something that you've saved for. You may not see this dollar again, but you'll see it in another form. And loved ones, I want to tell you, those of you that have loved ones that have just passed over, tragic stories of children that have passed, I, we don't make light of those things. But I want to tell you, you haven't lost them if Jesus is in the equation they're going to be in your life again on the other side in something far better than you can imagine. Lord, thank you for this Easter Sunday. Thank you for this day. I thank you that you are willing to go out on a limb and say, if Easter's not true, nothing's true. But you said it is true and whosoever will may come. I pray for those that want to come today. I pray for those that don't know Jesus. Help them to know that either up front here with the prayer teams or calling that phone number, they can come to you and they can receive eternal life. There are others that need prayer for various reasons. Maybe they're sick, maybe they've got a problem. (laughs) Whatever it is, we come to you. Easter, we come to you. In Jesus' name.